This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You might remember we were talking uh, uh, last week or a week or so ago about a rally at City Hall. About 200 people showed up at the rally at Hamilton City Hall yesterday to protest uh, hydro prices. The lady behind it, Sarah Wara Poljanski, is the event organizer and is with us right now. Hello, Sarah. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. I'm tired. How are you doing? <laughs> I guess. Talk about this. Uh, why are you tired? What has what, what the last few weeks been like for you? Um, a lot of kind of running around, talking to people, getting stuff organized, and just getting everything ready. And then last night, and I, I don't do a lot of public speaking, so I get really nervous. So being in front of the people kind of... I. I was saying to people at one point, I'm like, I think I'm having tachycardia. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I can understand today you just want to relax and breathe a little bit after all of this. Uh, surprised by the turnout? It was good. I'm not going to lie. Anytime you have a protest, like a lot of people are, it's not a thing people do daily, right? So I'm glad that people yeah. made it out. Um, some people were shocked that there weren't more people, but, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy that people showed up. Like, people might have still been working. Like, sure. I know a lot of people are sick right now. So, No, yeah, I mean, anytime I, you can get anybody out to something like this, good for you. No, I would say that that's a success. Uh, yeah. Talk a little bit about, you know, give it, talk about yourself. You said you don't do a lot of public speaking. You're not a protester. How did this all come about for you? Well, I've done protests, but... Um, you know, like, I was asked last night, you know, is this your first protest? And I've said, you know, no. Um, I did a couple before when they were closing schools, so I made mm-hmm. the comment, me and this government have a, a pre-existing relationship. <laughs> a bad one. Um, so it was just, yeah, again, the prices and it's how it's affecting everybody. It doesn't seem to matter what your kind of income level is. It doesn't matter what your, you know, political beliefs, your background, what, you know, who you vote for everyone's kind of fed up with this and they're looking for change. They want something to be done and kind of these token, you know, things that were being handed out, like, you know, the 8% subsidy, Mm -hmm. um, this not signing new contracts, which, you know, was pretty much a PR stunt in my eyes and probably most other people, that actual real changes need to be made. So we're going to start pressing the government, you know, you need to do something. We're not waiting till the next election. And at the same time, we don't want to be bought off with our own money and fooled into reelecting them and having them, once they get in office, only pull these same stunts again and start signing these contracts and put everything up. You know, winter's coming. We're all happy that the hydro's off because we don't need the air. And what are we hit with? Gas increase. Hmm. So, Lots of people yell and scream, Sarah. What made you want to take it this step farther? Um, I guess I just went, was maybe just a little bit angrier than other people, I guess. I kind of have had some experiences in my life, and I kind of say to my husband, you know, I, I don't, I want to be happy in my life. And <laughs> this is making me unhappy, and not only does it make me unhappy, but I'm seeing other people unhappy, and that makes me unhappy. Uh, did you think that we, uh, d- does any of this, meaning the rise in prices, surprise you? I mean, we voted in this government with a majority. Um, we knew this was coming. I mean, th- th- this was certainly one of the platforms that they got elected on. So why are people all of a sudden saying, hey, you know, what's going on here? I mean, should they be surprised? Didn't we know this was coming? 
Um, some of us knew this was coming because if you remember back Dalton McGinty the first time he ran and when he said a whole bunch of stuff he said and people were like, whoa, this guy's not getting in. And then he ran the next time and he did get in. But at the same time, you've got to remember, I don't even know, I think we might only have one or two. We've only got a handful of liberal MPPs in the Hamilton surrounding area. A lot of it's heavy in the GTA. So for us, we look at this as, well, this isn't our mess. We didn't ask for this. So that's why I think we, we are more engaged to kind of push back. You know, we were able to get people out from the NDP and from the PC party, which was good to have, you know, them come talk about, you know, what they're going to try to do. So I think as Hamiltonians, we kind of feel we're getting really ripped off because, one, we didn't vote for this, and, two, it, it's, it's disgusting. Do you think another, are do you think another political party can fix this? <sighs> Herein lies the issue. Hmm. Um, even if you get rid of some of them, because they did a cabinet shuffle there a couple months ago, right? Yep, yep. And then they just did their, how do you pronounce their proroguing of... Proroguing, and, the then, and then that's when they announced the rebate of the uh, provincial HST portion of uh, your, your hydro bill. But at the same time, they've still got their bureaucrats and the people behind the scenes who are telling them, you know, these good ideas. They still have the people who they're giving the contracts out to that are going to their dinners and funding their campaigns and kind of, you know, looking for those handouts back, you know, once they're in office. So the whole system in itself is kind of set up to fail for the residents at this point. So if another political party were to get in, I think they'd have to pretty much undo everything this Liberal Party has done. And some of the stuff that you're hearing liberals and liberal supporters say and other people say is, you know, uh, the Mike Harris government did this and this and this. And the thing is, is this government's been in for like 13 years or something. They've yeah. had more than enough time to make any changes that they needed to do. And when you say, okay, well, yeah, we can say, you know, Mike Harris started the sale of it. But, you know, it's the Liberal Party who's selling off the, what, 40 to 60 percent of Hydro One. That's happening now. We need to focus on what's happening now. We have to, you know... What happened, the last government is done and over. We need to focus on the people doing the stuff now and have them change that. Uh, we were talking about the, the government offering rebates after the prorogation and, um, and then finally coming out and announcing that they were going to stop these projects, which I guess trims less, uh, just under $4 billion uh, off their bill, which will take about $2.45 a month off the average bill. Uh, do you think stopping these projects has people's minds changed? Do you think these, you know, if they start changing or stopping these projects, rather, that people will say, hey, well, they're getting the message, let's keep going with them? They might, but I'm not falling for the carrot and the stick. I, I've seen, you know, I pay attention, you know, and I've seen what they do, and that's my concern, is this is only going to be, you know, the next election's a year and a half or so away. They're going to start to ease up a bit to gain trust, but then, you know, once they're back, they can't be trusted. In my eyes, they're not trustworthy. So I, I would ask that people pay attention and kind of look behind the smoke and mirrors and see, you know, because they've only started doing this since they lost the by-election. You know, it took that. It took them and their power being threatened before they made any changes. So as a taxpayer, you know, I, I don't like that because it shows that they didn't make these changes for me and my family, my neighbors, the people in my city, the people of this province. They started to make changes when it affected them.
What so, would you say when uh, the government would say, um, you know, you already talked about the Harris years, so we can't use that one. But what would you say when they say, well, you know, we have to address climate change. It's something that we uh, have to do. Uh, it's a mandate from the federal government as well. Uh, and, and, and also that they've built up a reliable source of electricity. That's why it's costing you. Well, the thing is, it's costing us is because they're giving out so many of these contracts. That's the thing is they're kind of fudging numbers. And we do need to address the environment, obviously. So this is less about so this is less about the environment and more about their lack of due diligence. Pretty much. They they're they're not responsible. And again, I think it had a lot to do with, you know, promises that perhaps they made to other people because of funding that they got during elections. I'm not, you know, 100% sure on this, but there's a lot of things. It's not as simple as they make it sound. I think a lot of stuff happened behind the scenes. Like, yes, when the Green Energy Act came in, that was their thing. We're going to make renewable energy sources and yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, they found that, you know, for every one job, per se, they created with this Green Energy Act, like three or four other industry jobs were gone. And the jobs that this did create were only short term. And so a lot of this energy as well is it's not, we have too much, we need to stop focusing on it. Because what's happening is they continue to build up this green energy even though we don't need it. And that's what's costing us. So you feel that as Ontarians we've done our part? Yeah, like we've been... We're green enough, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, until they find other, innov- like, they need to innovate. They need to do that, yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if it's not viable and you're going to start to hurt the people who, you know, fund your salaries and who are working, you know, if you start losing jobs. People aren't paying taxes. They aren't shopping. They can't afford to live. We need to, you know what I mean? You start to lose. Yeah. I think what the, bothers the economic me. economic system. I think what bothers me about all of this is that if you question any of it, you're labeled as somebody who's anti-environment. And I think everybody's green now. Everybody wants to save the planet. Everybody wants to do the right thing. But again, you've got to make sure you do your due diligence on these sort of things. And you don't, um, you know, you're not trying to save the planet on the backs of the whole planet on the backs of, of voluntarians, really. Well, that's the thing is we've kind of entered into this thing in society now where a lot of politicians and people, if you don't share the same beliefs with them or you kind of challenge them and you, you want to get into, like, a debate and kind of hash out facts for facts and what's options and emotions, you get labeled with some kind of ism or some buzzword and it gets nasty. And what's happening is they're tr- starting to use that as a way to get people to back down from challenging ideas that people find are kind of faulty. And so the thing with the environment is, you know what, we are making the steps to be greener. People are, you know, they're recycling, they're using, you know, less energy. We mm-hmm. know that, and that's one of the biggest complaints. Why am I using less energy? And I'm still being billed more. So we are making these changes, and it's progressive, and it's going to keep happening. But at the same time, the government does have to do their own, like you said, due diligence and making sure that, you know, in order to become more greener, we actually aren't hurting our citizens. Good point. Sarah Wari Poljanski has been with us, event organizer. Uh, a couple hundred people showing up at uh, City Hall yesterday in Hamilton to protest rising electricity prices. Sarah, good for you. Way to uh, pay it forward and sort of uh, put your money where your mouth is. And uh, good luck to you moving forward on this. Thank you. 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have been enjoying very low oil prices, and I guess that's from a pump perspective, not certainly from a country uh, revenue uh, perspective. But now we're finding out that OPEC countries have reportedly agreed to cut crude oil production, and that means prices are going up. Dan McTagg is with us, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, and analyst, and GasBuddy.com to find out more. He is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Uh, but other than that, uh, better than the alternative, Scott. Uh, I guess anytime, uh, anytime prices start to fluctuate like this, uh, you're, everybody, you're everybody's go-to guy. We've talked about this for a while, and that being yep. OPEC and the supply and, and how what they're trying to do with all of this. Why are they cutting back production now? Why is this happening now? I think uh, severe economic realities for most of their members. I mean, Venezuela is on, on, on the brink of bankruptcy, uh, Gabon, uh, which just joined uh, to try to get back in, uh, nations like Angola, all of these nations uh, are suffering. And uh, given the significant amount of their revenues generated by oil, losing 60, 70 percent of the value of that oil in the past two years has really uh, spelt uh, nothing short of disaster for, for most of them. And so it's out of uh, economic uh, dire necessity that uh, a lot of these nations have been trying to get Saudi Arabia and others to come together to at least consider uh, a cut in, in, in production or in stick to quotas. Uh, that's easier said than done. And uh, so far, there seems to have been at least wide recognition by OPEC and some non-OPEC uh, players that were there yesterday, Russia, of course, um, that um, something needed to be done. What's being proposed isn't much. It's only a 700,000 barrel drop a day, and that uh, has to be agreed to sometime at the end of November, I think November 30th. So we're still a long way off, and uh, despite that, I think uh, some of the uh, enthusiasts, uh, traders, uh, financial speculators uh, got ahead of themselves, drove the price of oil up two and a half bucks a barrel yesterday, and of course, they sent the gallon on the gasoline side. So that means a, a three cent a liter increase here in Hamilton um, uh, tonight into tomorrow, and uh, that, of course, uh, may be premature, but it's nevertheless uh, in the books and uh, slated for an increase at the pumps tomorrow. Uh, what happened with this plan? I mean, initially OPEC did all of this to flood the market and try to put other producers and frackers and such out of business. What happened to that plan? Well, obviously it's uh, wound up uh, doing more harm than good to the members. I mean, good for Saudi Arabia, I suppose, being able to say it can control uh, and it can operate as a swing player and it can also... Uh, withstand, uh, given its large financial reserves over the years of high prices of uh, oil, but it's it's been an absolute disaster to the other 13 members, and it doesn't prevent other countries from getting back on in, into the business. I mean, Iran no longer has sanctions; it's quite prepared to uh, get back to producing, uh, you know, four million barrels a day from its you know one million uh, barrels a day. Uh, it's not really interested in any quotas at this point, so. You know, was it uh, well worth it? I think one nation, Saudi Arabia, was looking to maintain market share, but it's done so at the expense uh, of uh, the other nations, which were once members of OPEC, still are, and the cohesiveness within that group has been utterly shattered. So what happens now? I mean, does this start the trend to higher prices? Or is this going to continue? Will it level off? I don't think so. I, you know, I, um, I think this is a one-off, um, and for now... Remember, if you decide as OPEC members, 14 of you, to cut back on production, how does that stop the U.S. Uh, 
uh, you know, uh, tight uh, fracking horizontal drillers from getting back in. They have these little apparatuses and devices and, and equipment, the rigs that can go right back in within a few hours and start uh, pumping out oil that's sitting in the ground. So if you want to, you know, drop your production, I'm telling most, and I think it's very telling that most will understand that uh, the Americans are only too willing to uh, to fill the void and uh, and increase production, especially if prices go up to warrant that. So what does this mean for Canada's oil and gas industry? Anything? Not much yet. No, not much yet. Uh, I think, you know, the fact is uh, the most important thing that could happen to Canadian oil, and as a result, Canadian revenues, would be to have a pipeline getting oil to global markets. Until that happens, this is really more of a stab in the dark. Uh, it, 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 it sounds positive, but it's, uh, it's a far cry. We're still $15 less than the world price for oil for Canadian oil, Western Canadian Select, which is our... We pump about four, three and a half million barrels of that a day. We're selling it to, if if the global market's forty five, forty seven dollars. We're selling it for about thirty two. So that discount uh, it needs to be resolved more than anything else. Uh, that is far more important from a macro point of view uh, for the Canadian economy and for producers than uh, you know a, a dollar or two barrel here based on hype and spec. So your uh, your thought on the uh, pipeline announcement that was uh, made in regard to natural gas on the West Coast the other day? Well, I think it's a good announcement, a little late. Uh, the market is already somewhat tanked, um, and I'm not sure that uh, the uh, the investors, those who are involved with this, have the same kind of financial enthusiasm or commitment that uh, they once did. Um, you know, uh, and everyone's producing natural gas. Much of our natural gas, by the way, here in Ontario comes now from the Marcellus shale production just south of the border in Pennsylvania and, uh, you know, uh, uh, in other states uh, surrounding part of New York and uh, uh, Virginia. So, you know, everyone knows how to produce natural gas. Uh, there isn't really a huge global appetite for it. It will eventually catch up. But like oil, uh, we're a far, you know, we're a far cry from where we were just two years ago when uh, natural gas was fetching five, six dollars uh, uh, MBTU versus uh, today at two ninety or three. So, um, you know, it's. Uh, I think it's a great announcement, but it's uh, it's a far cry from uh, where we were just two years ago. And I think it's still as important as ever to get Canada's oil to a global market so that we actually can fetch uh, international prices beyond the cost and the economic benefits and greater production. Fifteen dollars a barrel at a million and a half a day, uh, in my uh, books, works out to an additional six or seven billion dollar boost to the Canadian economy. That's a lot of jobs. It pays for a lot of health care. Uh, some were commenting that this may not even get built because of the situation you've just mentioned. Uh, do you think it will get built? Well, I think it will eventually, inevitably. The fact is you've got approval for it. Uh, the approval, uh, you know, the, it's, it's been a long time coming. Uh, but in this sense, uh, you know, the announcement that an approval has been given is better than the alternative of, uh, you know, ongoing wrangling and having to satisfy everybody in this. Uh, business of saying that social license pre, you know, precludes every other kind of decision that's out there. I think social license is important. That's the big uh, buzzword these days to approval of pipelines, but you can't do it. Uh, the, the interests of a handful of people cannot defy the interests of, uh, the, of, of our entire economy and the interests of uh, society as a whole. So it has its place but it shouldn't be uh, as a precondition for everything else. Uh, It's only one element, and uh, unfortunately, it's been that uh, uh, infusion of that particular maxim by the government, which I think is going to cause enormous problems with other necessarily needed pipelines across Canada. So uh, we can expect in the GTHA a three cent a litre increase uh, by Friday. What about next week? Do you see this leveling off? Do you see it dropping again? 
It could. Uh, you're going to have to, you know, three day to day futures yeah. traders. This time yesterday didn't hadn't really made much of a uh, of, a, of a, an effort at uh, trading prices up. Once the announcement was made, uh, suddenly prices shot up dramatically. So uh, always remember, Scott, that what happens on today's market uh, is the price that is reflected in 36 hours from now. So that's how this really works. I, you know, uh, there's still another trading day tomorrow. So far, trading day today doesn't show any enthusiasm for anything. There's no build on yesterday's increase. There's no, as far as I saw just a few minutes ago, in any decrease. So the prices you see are pretty much going to stay where they are, um, but that could change tomorrow. Suddenly, people get enthusiastic, run enthusiastic. You could see it, uh, prices reverse just as dramatically. Dan McTagg has been with us. Uh, of course, energy gas analysis, gasbuddy.com to find out more. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great being here. Thanks for having me again, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, you might remember last summer we were talking about assaults and uh, questions regarding uh, safety of staff uh, with St. Joe's Healthcare. And as a result of that, uh, a study was conducted. Details from an external review of staff safety at St. Joseph's Healthcare have been released. To talk more about all of this, Dr. David Higgins is with us, president of St. Joe's Healthcare in Hamilton, and is with us now. Hello, doctor. How are you today? Scott, very well, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So tell us about this review. What have you? What has it revealed for you? Well, Scott, you know, as you commented earlier on, that we, we, were, we were concerned following a series of events in the winter where a number of our staff were seriously hurt uh, with episodes of, of violence that occurred in our organization. And as a result of that, an internal review was conducted, but then we also felt it important to, to arrange for an external review with experienced uh, peers from other organizations uh, to review our uh, processes for, for caring for staff and ensuring staff remain safe. And I think it's, uh, it's been a, an important review for us. And I think this review also, I think, was good in that it did say, it, it indicated to us that we were on the right track. Uh, and we also began and have, and compl- and have, have implemented much of the work on all, if not on most, if not all, of the recommendations. What have you learned from this review? What what has been brought to your attention? I think well 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 the uh, the review was was very thorough and for your viewers who want to review it, it's on our website. But I think there was there was uh, six broad areas uh, looking looking at there, and I think they were not entirely new to us. But I think was important was the the emphasis uh, that they placed on that, and also I think what was also I think I think um, supportive and and uh, and very encouraging to us is some of the things we'd implemented. I'm just going to speak a little bit about one of the safe, a thing called safe wards. Uh, this is a process where that from the National Health Service in Britain, which we pioneered here on our forensic program for those very, very ill uh, patients that are cared for, where staff and, and patients uh, collaborate around how to ensure the environment remains safe, both for the patient care, but also more import- as importantly, for staff care. So. I think it was, it was helpful to us to see, I think, that we were on the right track. Uh, we have work to do. I also want to emphasize, though, this isn't the only thing we're doing in St. Joe's to, to improve our staff safety, but it's a very important piece, given the events we had of last winter, uh, and, and uh, we've learned a lot from it. Uh, the union at that point was calling for uh, more staff, saying that it was a staffing issue, that uh, that these individuals needed more help in doing their job. Any any chances of, of more staff being added or directed to the area? I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, and I, I, I think we, we do we do recognize it really as, as how we do things, as opposed to simply 
implementing more staff is is uh, is um, is the answer. And again, interestingly, uh, this report did not comment specifically that our staffing ratios were, were out of line with any other organization who cares for similar patients. You were talking about the six areas. Uh, can you just give us a brief idea of what those areas would be? Yeah, so the, the, the big areas were, were first of all, was, was increasing, it's, it's called increasing workforce capacity prevention, for prevention and management of violence. So a number of, of recommendations, for example, um, ensuring all of our staff had up-to-date training on uh, crisis prevention and intervention, uh, ensuring that our tuition, for, cert, uh, uh, for example, for staff around specific programs uh, to enhance their education will be there, to, uh, to also to incorporate um, training around, around events, for example, using videos of, of and using simulated events, for example, to help staff hone their skills and maintain their skills in there. The sec- second one would be ensuring our standards of care and the environment and team effectiveness was, was, was optimized. And again, there was a number of recommendations in there using, for example, um, tools to evaluate a risk uh, using um, handover at, at, each, at, each, uh, at each shift of staff to understand the patients and their needs and, uh, on the day. Uh, and again, the, the third one would be standards for looking at events after the fact. So if, if someone was did escalate into an event where there was an episode of violence, how do we review that episode and learn from that so the next time we have such an episode, we, we can be ready for that and change what we do? And there's a number of recommendations around that. Also, of course, there are recommendations for, uh, for me, uh, for, for the administration in, in the corporate area. How do we um, look at the structures we have in the organization to make sure the recommendations emerging from events or even recommendations particularly from our staff can rapidly be reviewed, assessed, and implemented as appropriate, and also to make sure that we are comparing ourselves to others. So not to be just smug and say we're doing an okay job, but to look at how we compare with other organizations of a similar size and similar complexity to us. And finally, how do we look at how we protect staff using the facility? And, and you have commented on some of those already. I think might be. I think most might be surprised that this sort of event even happens. Uh, can you explain, or, or, or at least shed some light into how or why these sort of things would happen in a hospital? I just want to say, Scott, violence is never acceptable within our organization. But we also have to recognize, and I think our staff do this, and they come to work every day recognizing that they care for some of the people with the most significant brain illnesses, if you like. We, we are the regional center for caring for those with significant mental health and addictions, and we recognize mm-hmm. uh, that and are proud of that part of our mission. Having said that, we have to recognize that such, such clients can sometimes be unpredictable, and we have to understand how to protect our staff. And those events, while they were, while they were shocking, um, were, were something which, which we, we, and we obviously regret. Um, we, we do recognize that that risk does exist. And our job in this is to take on, take on that challenge of ensuring the environment we create for our patients and our staff is as safe as it can be and how to ensure that, that we do deliver an effect, effective environment and effective care for our staff and patients. Uh, what is the response from the staff regarding this? Too early well, to tell? Early, or? If this is early, early days yet. I, 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 just, I just came from a, a, a town hall with our staff on the West Fifth site. It's for our staff to see today. We've shared it with our union leadership as well. And so over the next uh, week or so, we, we, we've, we'll be seeking feedback from our staff in, into the, what they feel about this, and our, and our channels are open. And as I said before, this is not the only thing we're doing within our organization to enhance staff safety, but it's a very important one. And we're looking forward to the feedback from our staff uh, and to working with them, because we, we cannot do this alone. This is a team effort, 
and it will only be effective if we work together to ensure we create the environment that is best for, for, for staff and best for patients. Is this a common problem, doctor, in healthcare institutions? I, I think that's a great question, Scott, because I think if you, if you look at, I'm sure you've done this, if you look at across the world, actually, I think it's fair to say that in the healthcare systems, we have maybe under-recognized the, the, um, the, um, the violence that can occur, whether it's threats of violence, whether it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, assaults, or whether it's very serious assaults like the ones we experienced recently. So I think, I think as a healthcare sector, we, we have maybe under-recognized that for some time. We, we did recognize this about two years ago and began to work on how do you report these episodes. And there's more to violence than, than being physically assaulted. Violence takes many forms, including verbal, including threats, including other, other elements too. So we recognize the depth of that and have tried to address that as well. So um, it, it, it is a, a, an emerging issue. It's an issue we're becoming more aware of. But also it's fair to say that the populations we're caring for are likely more complex and issues of, of, drug, of drug use, issues of addiction, and issues of, of other brain, brain illnesses that, that, that do emerge as, as we have a uh, uh, complex populations that we care for. So, so I think there's a number of factors that feed into this issue. But I do, I do give credit to the uh, to our unions, particularly ONA, uh, our Ontario Nurses Association, for redrawing this to the attention, not just only in, in Ontario, but across our country and across the, the world, actually. Dr. David Higgins has been with us, President St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. Details emerging from an external review of staff safety at St. Joseph's Healthcare have now been released. Doctor, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Scott. Goodbye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Scottish comedian uh, Danny Boy doing a cross-country tour of Canada will land him in uh, Hamilton at Hamilton Place on October 12th. Uh, the Gemini-nominated performer has made annual appearances at all the major festivals around the world, including regular appearances at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival and has performed three times at Live at the Apollo. Joining us now and in town October 12th at Hamilton Place is Danny Boy. Hello, Danny. How you doing today? Hello there, Scott. <clears throat> What uh, I didn't understand any of that last segment, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> it was, it, that's because that's because it's Ontario politics, and well, believe I'm, me, I'm, Danny. I'm interested in, that, in in local politics. It sounded very heated and passionate. It is and, very uh, heated. We're we're trying to build an LRT here. And right now, now that's your first problem. What is an LRT? <laughs> a light rail transit system. Ah, right. It goes okay. from one end of the city to the other. I was trying in to work it out in my head. It was like a really tough crossword puzzle. Yeah, no, it's just a very. It, it's actually just a train. It's really just a train. That's all right. it is. You know, trying to link us all together to the rest of the world and the rest of the region and all that sort of uh-huh. thing. Let me ask you this question: What's the vibe in Scotland right now, uh, post Brexit vote? <laughs> Well, interestingly, you were alluding to a referendum about having a referendum. Mm. Um, it seems uh, very uh, much like that in Scotland at the moment. There are people that are now pushing for a second uh, independence referendum on the back of the uh, of, of the vote, because Scotland overwhelmingly, of course, remained uh, d- d- uh, voted to remain inside the EU, and we kind of got dragged out by England's pensioners. <laughs> they, it's true, they blocked voted, the over 65 that, that's what they say. Up. That's what they say. It was the older vote that caused this. Do you agree with that? No, it took, well, it's. I mean, the facts don't lie. Yeah. The facts don't lie. It was. Um, yeah, it was overwhelmingly. It was the uh, the sort of over sixty five. The people that just ironically have enjoyed uh, have enjoyed sixty five years of. Uh, peace and prosperity in the European Union were the people that voted to take us out of it. So. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Uh. And it's interesting, actually, because the, you can't blame, you can't say the old people were to blame, because actually 
people over the age of 80 who remember the Second World War, they voted to remain inside the EU because, wow. you know, they remember all the, the pain and the suffering. It's this sort of horrible, it's that, it's that 55 to 70 age group that kind of ruined it for all of us. Hmm. Uh, is Scotland divided now then? Is it, is it very much a divided country or, or it, will this bring everybody back together as you decide whether what you're going to do regarding the European Union? Well, well, that's it. Yeah, we're not divided over Europe. Clearly, there was a, a mandate for us to stay in Europe. Yeah. Uh, but we are divided, uh, as we probably have been for centuries, over whether we remain part of the UK or not. But this could be uh, the thing that pushes us over the edge, like a jilted lover. We we'll, we'll finally go. This could be the one that we go. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't look like you guys want to leave the jilted lover. It seems to be uh, you, you keep. It's like you keep going back to each other to have sex. Now this is taking an awful long time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you don't see us when we're together. It's yeah, the same. Exactly. Um, no, we. Uh, oh, well, I think I don't know because it's a different. It's a very difficult situation because um, it, you, you, we, we want to be part of Europe and. Um, I think the feeling to be part, to be European is stronger than the feeling to be British. That is mm. my my summation. But of course, you know, you don't know. Think about referendums and elections at the moment. Is there, an, is there an, no one has any idea, right? Yeah. Polls mean absolutely nothing nowadays. So, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? So, if you perform in Scotland, how big an issue is this? Do you talk about this in your show, or do you just stay the heck away from it? Oh no, absolutely, I talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. Uh, no, I don't shy away from it. I mean, basically, it's, it's the it's the elephant in the room in most uh, most comedy gigs I do at the moment. People want to know what I think about it, so I talk about it. And actually, in, uh, I've done uh, my first show in Halifax last night, and uh, I wheeled out uh, Scottish and British and European politics, as well as American politics. And, um, yeah, people people are interested in it. And, of course, I've, I make it funny and I make it lighthearted. I don't get too... Yeah bogged down with uh, the, the political side of it. But, Can you uh, feel the audience turn as you go from one to the other, as you take, you know, as you may represent one side and then the other? I mean... Uh, I don't I don't really care. I mean, I think to some extent that the, the um, you know, I'm, I'm doing... Uh, people want a bit of light relief. It's been a very tough year politically, I think, for, yeah. for all, for everyone. And it's not over yet. So um, if you can't come and see the, the funny side of it, um, then you really shouldn't be, shouldn't be going outside your own house at the moment. Because... Um, yeah, I, I I just try and try and take a, a comedic spin on 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 the heavy stuff and and you know it's it's really the only way of dealing with it. I mean, if we didn't if we didn't laugh, we'd cry, right? How how is the whole U.S. election uh, playing over there, uh, especially with Trump? I mean, it seems to have consumed us. I mean, the 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 numbers of the watching the debate the other day, they were comparing them to Super Bowl numbers. Uh, what what does the rest of the world think of that? Well, yeah, I mean, we're definitely following it pretty closely. I mean, but in Scotland, we've got the added problem of having a Trump golf golf resort that's just been opened. Yeah, bang yeah. in the middle of the country <laughs> that no right. one wants. That everyone, I think, I think there's heavier police around that than there is around Trump Tower in New York because <laughs> uh, people want to get there and vandalize it, um, and some people have. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's sort of one of those uh, those things that everyone. I think everyone's sort of in slight disbelief about the whole thing. I mean. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it was funny for a long time, and now it's sort of getting less and less funny as we approach the actual, the moment of truth. So, uh, yeah, it's 
it's definitely being followed around the world. We're definitely the eyes of the world are on America at the moment. We certainly uh, we certainly seem to be a world of extremes now. Whether it's politics, yeah. it's extreme left, it's extreme right, and this that religion, it's extreme this, extreme that. Yeah. Uh, th- there's no more middle ground. How does that make its way into your into your act or into your comedy? Well, again, you know, you've just got to, you've got to try and find the the uniting forces. And co- comedy is about getting people of different views together and and finding that we do have common ground and that we do laugh at the same same things so in many ways comedy i think it's it's more important now than ever and uh, you know that this american election is kind of it's it feels to me like the the ultimate showdown between sort of reality tv and uh and common sense or or or, or life and um that 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 is the ultimate two extremes and uh you know I, it's difficult to know what I'm, I'm hoping this will be the end game and something then we'll start a new chapter after the American election of just trying to find stuff that unites us rather than divides us, but uh, we live in hope, eh? Uh, Well, it seems that uh, everybody has a protest of some sort, and uh, you know, that that we've uh, we've decided we're going to mobilize ourselves in in any way we can, no matter what the cause is. I mean, you you talk about what's going on with the U.S. election, uh, the situation with the Brexit vote, where it it happened, and then all of a sudden people didn't really realize what to do after it happened. Do you think we're looking past the nose in our face these days? Well, you know, interestingly with Brexit, the, the, the two guys that spearheaded the campaign to leave, they weren't expecting to win. Yeah. So the, the, the most extraordinary scenes I've seen this year on TV was those two guys on a news conference the next day, Boris Johnson and Michael yeah. Gove, mm-hmm. looking shell-shocked yeah. that people had actually bought into their... Because I think to some extent these extremists in, in politics are people, and it might be true with Trump as well, I've heard very, various theories that they don't really want to win. They're just attention seekers. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're actually, they're better, they, they cope with loss better because they can take the moral high ground and say, well, you, you look what you would have won sort of thing, rather than actually people that want, want to have uh, that kind of responsibility. I mean, um, there is a theory that this whole Trump thing is just to, just to heighten the brand, you know, yeah. just to, to promote, it's a massive... Uh, a massive uh, self-promotional thing. So, what's it like doing comedy in other countries? What's it like doing having a global audience? Do, does the act change much as you go from one country to another? H- how do you keep ahead of that? Yeah, it sort of has to um, because uh, you know. I, I mean, I find like wherever I go. I mean, if, if I'm telling a lot of my stuff is anecdotal. I don't actually. I mean, we're talking about, about politics, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, uh, obviously there's a little bit of politics in the show, but it's not, uh, it's certainly not the over, I don't have one theme right. in my show. Um, a lot of my stuff is stories, it's anecdotes. And I find uh, that's quite useful in terms of traveling around the world because I'm involved in every story I tell. Mm-hmm. So if, you bought, if you've bought into the, the notion of who I am and what I do and what I'm likely to say, then the actual uh, stories work everywhere because they're funny stories. But right. um yeah, I have to change certain references and certain sometimes words or phrases um, that you don't have, or I'll, I'll, I either have to drop the joke altogether, or I have to sort of revise it. Um, with, but yeah, on the on the whole, it's not too bad. I don't find it's uh, it's too constricting. Are more people meeting audiences alike than different? Uh, do they laugh at the same stuff? Um. I don't. I think. I think. I find some audiences more conservative uh, yeah. than others in the sense that uh, 
sometimes there's certain material that they'll, you know, if you're in a kind of uh, sort of like a conservative town in England, for example, that sometimes, you know, if you do religious or political or certain types of material they find quite offensive or they'll be t- slightly taken aback by. And then in other places, you know, they love it. So it's kind of, you've just got to, I sort of try and pitch it as according to the audience, but then I don't want to compromise too much because it's still it's still my comedy and I don't want to, you know, take stuff out that I like. What's your view of the Canadian experience so far? Well, I, I genuinely, <laughs> I've got a joke about this in the show, but I, people ask me all the time about where, you know, where's my favorite place in the world to play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and cause I, I go around doing this and I, I, I said, I'll, I'll be honest. I usually just say the name of the place I'm in. Yeah. Well, why not? There's no point in upsetting people unnecessarily, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, the, but the truth is it's, it's, it's here. It's Canada. <laughs> You You're a lot. Now, do we believe you now, Danny? Do we believe you now, Danny, or do we not? I mean, well, how do we it. take that's this? That's it. That's the problem. I've got. I, it's, it creates a big laugh when I tell people this in, in the shows because they're like, "Oh, well, that's another joke." And I, uh, I'm, I'm, and then I have to explain how how it's genuine. And then I do. Well, put it this way: outside of Scotland, I find Canada to be the most sort of oddly comforting place. You know, it, it sort of feels more like Scotland than. Uh, than a lot of places that are closer to, to Scotland. So um, obviously that's a, a result of, you know, Scottish immigration here and stuff mm-hmm. in, over the years. But it's uh, I find it physically quite quite a, a nourishing place as well. So, Do you find that a lot of Scots show up to the show and look for, uh, you know, a little taste of the old country? Well, actually, no. It's, uh, and that's a good thing to some extent because... I kind of feel like if I go if I go abroad, I want to be I want to immerse myself in whatever country I'm in. And the idea of having a whole load of Scots turn up, I go, well, we might as well have done this at home, you know. Why why am I here and why are you here? Why why, why bother it? with a long flight? Yeah, why didn't we just get a train to Glasgow and just do it in a, do it in a barn? So I I quite like the idea of um, I mean because I do ask in the show sometimes about you know is there any Scottish people in, and I'm always pleasantly surprised by how few there are. Um, you know, there's always a handful, uh, but they're um, you and, and and I have to say, I can usually tell if I don't ask, I can usually tell them because they're the ones that will heckle. <laughs> uh, generally speaking, Canadians are as as the the the, the old adage goes, they are the the, the very uh, pl- the politest audiences. And then, but as a polite someone echoes, I, can, I almost always, when I follow up with the question, I hear a Scottish accent. Yeah. Or when you, you know, respond to a heckler, you have to apologize because perhaps you've hurt their feelings too much. Because you'll easily win with Canadian audiences, Easy. won't you? Yeah. You'll always cripple them. You'll take them right out at the knees. Well, what's interesting about Canadians is, is they don't heckle. They're very polite. But when they do heckle, they all heckle. So, like, <laughs> they, there's a kind of, there's a feeling when the gates are open. Yeah then everyone feels like, oh, this is cool, we can do this. But That's almost like cowardice, though, isn't it? Um, it's group, yeah, group oh, heckling. I, I suppose so, but um, there's a feeling of, uh, uh, and particularly if I say something like slightly derogatory about Canada or their town, mm-hmm. and someone heckles, they, then they sort of, sort of jump to the defensiveness, and they all kind of join in and like, yeah, who are you to tell us, sort of thing. Uh, so it's all, it's all quite, it's quite interesting, really. Uh, I understand this is the first time, first time you've toured here when there hasn't been snow on the ground. That is true. That must be nice. Well, it is nice. I've, and I've always kind of wondered what's under all that snow. And uh, <laughs> it turns out it's just more Tim Hortons. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a Tim Hortons, but 
Wow, I didn't think it was possible that there was any more of them, but they're all, uh, you do see them a lot more. They're a lot more visible now to me. They're just, I think they've taken out advertising space in my periphery vision. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. I, I don't think I've looked anywhere in any direction and not seen an advert for Tim Hortons. What is what is a Scottish person's uh, thoughts of Tim Hortons? Because obviously in here it's like a Canadian institution. I, mean, I know, and you can't really say anything about it. Um, look, uh <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I, yeah, why set you up like this? You know. Yeah, you, that is a loaded question. Yeah, I shouldn't I even I ask you. I cannot come out good out of this situation. Um, no, it's look. It's uh, it is what it is, right? And it's a good, uh, it's a good staple for for breakfast and places. And uh, it's as good as anywhere to pick up a bagel and a coffee. I reckon. But uh, uh, um, <laughs> I reckon you follow with I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I mean, put it this way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take a first date there. No, 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 no. Uh, so, uh, when people go to your show, what can they expect? To, to, to someone who's never seen you before or, or watched you perform, what can we expect? Well, um, to be honest, the shows uh, vary quite quite a lot from night to night. There's, uh, you know, some nights uh, I, it's um, I, I, cha- I change it quite a lot. So I don't know exactly that if, in terms of material, I don't know exactly what's going to be in it. But I do know that it's generally generally they work out quite well. <laughs> And um, there's a lot of laughs. There's a bit of interaction. Uh, there'll be, I mean, you'll you will laugh, and that's 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 my main my main goal. And um, uh, have you played have much? In, have you played in the United States? I have, yeah. And what's the difference there? Oh, how long have you got? I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, the thing is, the, the first thing you notice about Canadians. Well, this is sort of going full circle with this conversation. Is I, I'm, I'm talking about Brexit, I'm talking about uh, the Scottish referendum, and no one is, you know, confused by these things. They all know the... They don't necessarily know the characters involved, and, yep. and the play, but they know what happened, they know the story, they know... Um, and that's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> well, enough said there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I could have gone further with that. No, I understand, I understand. I, I, think, I think I've more or less, I think, you know, you can make the mental leap all on your own. I think we've done that, yeah. yeah. Danny Boy has been with us, Scottish comedian, touring across the country right now, stops at Hamilton Place on October 12th. Danny, thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with the tour. Not a problem. Good to talk to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.